Hello everyone, it's Mons Ahmed here. I'm a gastroenterologist in Birmingham, UK. In this podcast, we will be talking about endoscopic ultrasound-guided biliary drainage. Now, we all know that ERCP is widely used in current practice to drain the biliary system. And in cases of failed ERCP, percutaneous transhepatic biliary drainage, that is PTC, or even surgical interventions, have conventionally been used. However, nearly 20 years ago, in 2001, Giovannini and colleagues first described the use of endoscopic ultrasound-guided biliary drainage, and since then, this technique has gathered immense momentum. Today, I am joined in the Friends of Endoscopy virtual studio by Bharat Paranandi and Aaron Waihang on to talk about EUS-guided biliary drainage. Barat is a gastroenterology consultant at Leeds Teaching Hospital. He has an interest in pancreatic or biliary endoscopy, and Aaron is one of the SPRs on the gastroenterology unit at Leeds. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. So, gentlemen, can we start by talking a little bit about the background of EUSBD? What biliary structures can we access using this technique? How do we access these structures? And when is it appropriate to use a particular technique? So EUS guided biliary drainage has been around um, for about 10 years um, in evolution. And really we've been um, practicing it more commonly and routinely as part of our ERCP practice in big tertiary and quaternary centers in the UK over the past three to five years. So in Leeds, we have a considerable amount of experience in this. Um, there are a number of ways in which the biliary tree can be accessed endoscopically, uh, as you know. With EUS guidance, that can happen either intrahepatically or extrahepatically. From the extrahepatic point of view, the bardot can be um, accessed usually by the duodenum, which is called a cholidocojudenostomy. The intrahepatic bardots can be accessed from the stomach, uh, which is called a hepaticogastrostomy, um, and that is usually when we access just the left side of the intrahepatic ducts. The right side of the intrahepatic ducts cannot be accessed by EUS guidance. And finally, the gallbladder can also be accessed through the stomach, usually, but also through the duodenum, and that is called a cholecystogastrostomy. The decision about which access route we take depends on the usually the pathology and any um, other confounding elements. So if a patient has a distal biliary obstruction, and usually that would be in the context of a failed ERCP for, for example, duodenal obstruction combined with distal biliary obstruction, then we would tend to perform an extra hepatic puncture of the bile duct, which is called a cholidocojudenostomy. If a patient has, for instance, hyalur obstruction of the biliary tree, and therefore we can't access the extrahepatic route to provide biliary drainage, we could then think of accessing the intrahepatic ducts on the left side, thereby performing a, a hepaticogastrostomy. And that would be in the context of a patient who would not be suitable for um, ERCP because of duodenal obstruction or previous surgery that causes um, anatomical variation, making ERCP impossible. Cholecystogastrostomy is usually reserved for patients who have 
often malignant or certainly surgically inoperable cholecystitis and gallbladder empyema as a result of cystic duct obstruction, either from benign causes, for example, stones in the cystic duct, or more commonly from malignant infiltration of the cystic duct from cancers of the biliary tree. Why have these techniques become more mainstream in the past three or four years, do you think? Well, I think over the last few years, we've understood the need to be able to provide patients with timely uh, and single step procedures um, to resolve their episodes of biliary obstruction. Um, Some of the uh, problems that we've had with PTC over the years is that the um, outcomes from PTC can vary very much depending on which centre it's performed in um, and it tends to be performed in a much sicker group of patients. So we know from um, various studies that have been performed, including uh, quite a significant study that was performed in England, looking at HES data from um, at least 10 years, I think, of um, PTC statistics, um, that the outcomes were very, very heterogeneous across England um, and uh, weren't particularly favourable. And so we've realised that there is a need to offer patients like this something else. With a PTC, it's often not a single step procedure, it's often dual step or even three steps. And occasionally patients can be left with external permanent biliary drains, which is difficult in terms of quality of life and um, you know, can be uncomfortable for the patient. So the advantages of EUS guided biliary drainage is that it's a single step procedure. It can often be done under sedation. It can often be done extremely quickly. Um, so whereas a PTC might take um, in the realm of an hour or more. Um, EUS guided biliary drainage from start to finish can be done in about 10 minutes. Is that because of the availability of these new hot lumen opposing metal stents which allow you to do everything in one fluid step? Absolutely. So the development of these new um, cauterized um, stents which allows single step deployment and puncture of the bardot through the duodenal wall has absolutely revolutionized what we've been doing with EUS guided therapy. And without those, I don't think that EUS guided therapy would be as far ahead as it is now. Um, and certainly um, that is primarily the reason why these procedures are so quick and have a favorable risk profile when, con- you know, uh, when compared to other things such as surgical intervention and uh, percutaneous drainage. So from a patient perspective, a successful EUS guided biliary drainage procedure is generally a single procedure, as I said, under sedation, uh, sometimes under general anaesthetic, where there, whereas there is a morbidity associated with percutaneous drainage in terms of post-procedural pain, reduced quality of life, potentially the need for an external bag, either temporarily or definitively, and certainly the need for multiple re-interventions to eventually internalise that drainage bag, which you would not have with um, EUS guided biliary drainage. Of course, there are risks with EUS guided biliary drainage, which can't be underestimated, but we'll come on to that later in, in the talk. Which patients should be considered for EUS guided biliary drainage? So historically, EUS guided biliary drainage has been used primarily for patients with inoperable malignant disease. However, things have changed. It should be in the context of malignant disease, and that decision should be undertaken after careful discussion with the multidisciplinary team, either in the context of a cancer MDT or out of a cancer MDT. At Leeds, um, patients with uh, malignant distal obstruction who attend for an ERCP are also pre-consented for EUS guided biliary drainage at the same session should ERCP be unsuccessful. 
um, and we are very careful uh, not to let our ERCP techniques slip and not to um, use eos kind of biliary drainage as a crutch for bad ERCP technique. I think that's very important to state. Usually, this is going to be in the context of patients, as I said, who have inoperable malignancy, who have an inaccessible papilla, either due to duodenal stenosis or indwelling duodenal stents or ampullary infiltration um, or previous surgery. Um, and those are the best examples of when EUS gallibiliary drainage is appropriate. Occasionally, it is used for patients who have very difficult and impossible biliary cannulation. Um, we are starting to use it after extensive discussion um, with our pancreatic surgeons in patients who are potentially operable um, because, again, it's a very quick procedure, it's very safe, um, and it um, leads to a much quicker resolution of jaundice and cholangitis. What about this combined technique whereby the bile duct is punctured under EUS guidance and a guide wire is advanced anti-grade through the papilla to perform a transpapillary procedure? And absolutely, and what you're referring to is called an EUS guided rendezvous technique. We have a lot of experience in that, and our experience is that firstly, it's a multi-step procedure. Uh, it tends to involve a general anaesthetic. That our outcomes are less favourable than that of EUS guided cholidecogeudinostomy, probably because of the reasons that I've mentioned, because it is multi-step. Patients seem to be more prone to getting complications such as cholangitis post-procedure. Um, maybe part of that is due to the fact that we're inserting a guide wire from the duodenum to the common bile duct, which is then remaining in situ for some time under tension, and there may be an element of shearing that's going on. It's difficult to say, but we certainly feel that our outcomes for EUS-guided direct stenting are much more favourable to, to rendezvous. And I suppose what I would say in addition to that is if it's, for example, uh, the reason for the failed ERCP is duodenal stenosis, then that would be a mute point. You couldn't perform a rendezvous procedure. If the reason is because you just can't cannulate, then my argument to do a stenting procedure is that you've already probably then submitted a patient to 40 minutes, maybe an hour of potential attempts at cannulation. Sedation tolerance is going to be weaning, uh, waning. Sorry. In essence, what an EUS guided biliary drainage procedure from the duodenum is just a high pre-cut fistulotomy. And so if you kind of look at it that way, and especially the fact that it can take as little as five minutes, um, I think it's pretty clear that it's probably going to be favourable above a rendezvous. Um, we do very occasionally in very highly selected patients perform these procedures on patients with benign disease. So, a, a, you know, an example of that would be a patient with um, chronic pancreatitis with significant variceal um, disease uh, in the abdomen, um, benign biliary stricturing and duodenal stenosis, um, who presents with severe jaundice and maybe cholangitis, in whom an operation is never going to be possible. Um, and that is also another example of the kind of patient that might be suitable for this. But again, it would be through extensive MDT discussion. Should EUS biliary drainage be used instead of advanced ERCP techniques, such as needle knife pre-cut or needle knife fistulotomy? So the, the short answer to that is no. I don't think that it should be replacing good, ERC, good and standard and conventional safe ERCP technique. In patients who have preserved ampullas and preserved major papillas, failed conventional biliary cannulation um, would usually lead to performing an ancillary technique such as a pre-cut papillotomy or a, or a needle knife fistulotomy. 
which are very safe, especially if they're performed reasonably early on rather than waiting, you know, an hour into the procedure to perform them. They're reasonably safe and they have a very good success rate. Um, so rather than removing one scope and putting in another scope and starting with a different procedure, I do think it, it is certainly um, wise to try and go through your armamentarium of ERCP techniques um, before resorting to EOS capillary drainage. But I suppose the other aspect of this is that all these decisions need to be made fairly swiftly. Um, you have to consider the patient sedation tolerance. You have to consider their need for biliary drainage. Um, will doing this, will uh, protracting this procedure and avoiding successful biliary drainage from occurring on the day cause them detriment? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Um, and if the answer is yes, then reasonably quick decisions have to be made to progress from standard cannulation, ancillary techniques such as fistulotomy. Um, and if that fails, then consider EUSBD. How about patients with malignant strictures? Will these techniques affect the subsequent resectability of the lesion? So, um, as I mentioned before, we have got considerable experience now of doing these procedures in, especially cholidocodidinostomy, um, primarily in patients with um, potentially receptible disease. And a lot of this depends on the site of the stricture. A cholidocodidinostomy done to relieve obstruction from a distal malignant biliary stricture does not hamper the operative field um, for, for example, a Whipple's pancreaticoduodenectomy. Um, in Leeds, um, the last time we uh, have gone through our data, six of our patients uh, with a CDD stent have gone on to have a resection and our surgical colleagues have not encountered any particular technical difficulties as a result of leaving that stent in. Similar reports of resectability in patients who've had a CDD with either a lumen-opposing metal stent or a uh, an old-fashioned self-expanding metal stent have been published in the literature. Um, we don't tend to perform um, EUS-guided hepaticogastrostomy for patients with hyla strictures who are operable, and those patients would tend to go for PTC. Uh, and part of the reason for that is if they are operable, then trying to relieve that established fistula between the remnant liver and the stomach without requiring that patient to have a partial gastrectomy or something more extensive would be very, very difficult. Whereas to remove a CDD stent as part of a Whipple's procedure would be part of the standard technique because that part of the duodenum will always be removed. Uh, a previous gastric bypass procedure, we can not perform a cholidocodudinostomy as such, um, a standard cholidocodudinostomy, but we can consider something called an EDGE procedure, which is an EUS-guided um, transgastric ERCP. So in that kind of patient, what we would do is put a it is used the EUS scope to put one of these larger lumen opposing metal stents between the um, remnant and excluded stomachs, which we identify under EUS guidance. We then use that stent to traverse into the excluded stomach um, with an ERCP scope and then perform a standard ERCP. So we've done seven uh, edge procedures. Um, the majority have been for patients with um, biliary stone disease who have not been candidates for surgical resection. Uh, and most of these would have been patients who've already had their gallbladder removed and um, are either not fit or have declined surgical intervention. Um, in those patients, a PTC is going to be less favourable because it's very difficult to get out big stones via a PTC, uh, basically, uh, and to prevent the patient from being left long term with a biliary drainage bag. 
Uh, we've had one patient who had biliary stone disease due to causing acute pancreatitis, which has also caused a large Wardoff necrotic collection next to the excluded stomach. So that patient had an ERCP from the excluded stomach and also an EUS guided cyst gastrostomy from the excluded stomach as well. Are there any contraindications to EUS biliary drainage? So there are relative contraindications. So patients who are unsuitable to have sedation or a general anaesthetic for an endoscopic procedure would not be able to have this because um, we would not even consider doing this under under throat spray um, or without any sedation whatsoever. Um, Generally, patients have to be very still, um, although I've said that these can be as quick as five to ten minutes, um, you know, that things can sometimes go wrong and if they do go wrong then a patient may need to be sedated for longer um, so, so that's certainly important to um, uh, to realize patients with altered gastrogenial anatomy for example who are who are post-gastric surgery rather than gastric bypass procedures maybe for example they've had so for example if they've had a Rouen y anastomosis um, or they've had a previous Whipple's um, pancreatic ogedonectomy um, those kind of patients would not really be suitable for extrahepatic puncture. And we may have to think of other types of techniques, for example, balloon enteroscopy, assisted ERCP, or consider PTC in those patients. Patients who uh, are precluded from intubation in an endoscope, for example, those with head and neck cancer with severely altered head and neck anatomy, um, those who are profoundly coagulopathic or thrombocytopenic, but those particular facets can be uh, overcome by correcting uh, those numbers prior to the procedure. The bar duct, most importantly, has to be sufficiently dilated to allow the procedure to take place. So generally, we our rule of thumb is that the minimum size of bar duct that we will tackle is 12 millimetres. We have gone down to about 10 millimetres, but the risk does go up considerably in those patients that your bar duct stent will not open up and deploy in the correct space. Um, and that you will have a stent that opens up in the duodenum rather than, rather than in the bile duct. And certainly if you're starting this practice, I would not go for any bile ducts that are less than 14 millimetres to start off with. You briefly touched on this earlier, but is there still a case for using PTC in some patients? Yes, there certainly is. So those patients who have um, altered surgical anatomy that's prohibitive to any form of endoscopic biliary intervention and also certainly patients who require drainage of the right-sided intrapatic ducts, um, which we can't perform via EUS guidance. What I would also say is that I think this is a very um, specific question depending on which unit you are part of. If you're part of a unit that has very, very good outcomes from PTC, then I think that is one consideration to continue PTC in some of these patients. Um, if you're from a unit that has very good outcomes with EUS guided biliary drainage, and can offer these procedures extremely quickly with good support from pancreatic and HPV surgeons, as well as specialist radiologists, and uh, you have all the team back up behind you, then EUS guided drainage may offer a significant advantage. Thank you, Barrett. Aaron, what are the risks of EUS biliary drainage? So if you look at the data out there, um, there was a big meta-analysis um, a few years ago looking at um, 23 studies of EUS biliary drainages, and around 1,200 patients in total, and they found a cumulative adverse event rate at 23%. Um, and so the top few adverse events in these studies were um, bleeding at 4%, bile at 4%, pneumoperitoneum at 3%, and so on. But then you have to bear in mind, as Barrett mentioned, US bleeding drainage um, encompasses many different procedures, many different types of procedures and techniques. 
And this analysis included all techniques and all procedures. As we know, um, for example, patients who undergo US rendezvous, with, which is a multi-step procedure um, requiring multiple instruments and exchanges, there is a higher risk of, of something like bio-leak, for example, um, because the longer the procedure takes, the more likely it is for bio to leak around the space created by the initial puncture. Similarly, there are some adverse events such as pneumoperitoneum, which can be detected during the procedure. Uh, for example, um, in the process of creating a cholidocodolinostomy, um, a bit of air leaks into the peritoneum, and that can be bridged with a stent and uh, with no real clinical consequence to patients. But of course, um, it has to be recognized immediately. For example, in, in procedures such as um, EOS rendezvous or EOS undergrade therapy, there, there is a risk of pancreatitis because you do instrument close to the papilla. You don't get that risk with EOS cholidocodolinosomy because you're not close to the papilla in any way. The literature tells us that the risk of complication of EUSBD is at least 15%. Can you tell us a bit more about complications? So if you look at the data out there, um, it does quote a rate of 23%, but then each procedure is quite different and the risk profile is quite individualized to each type of EUSBD. What about the risk of pancreatitis? So broadly similar to our ERCP complication rates in particular post-ERCP pancreatitis of so 3 to 5%. Specifically to EOS biliary drainage, uh, we do quote the risk of bio-leak, which um, is not the case in ERCP. And when we quote the rate of bio-leaks to patients, uh, we give a, a percentage of 1 to 2%. So how would you know if a bile leak has occurred? Would the patient develop abdominal pain and you have excluded pancreatitis? How would you know? It can be difficult to determine um, during the procedure. And usually after the procedure, patients may develop abdominal pain, peritonitis, any features of um, a systemic inflammatory response, for example, pyrexia, tachycardia, and so on. And it would be really important to get urgent cross-sectional imaging to assess um, the intra-abdomen to see if there's any evidence of peritonitis or any fluid collections, which could be bilomas and so on. We also consent patients with regards to um, maldeployment of the stent. Um, it's something that uh, can sometimes be overcome during the procedure, for example, either replacing uh, with another stent that is then confirmed to be in the right position, or for it to be bridged with, for example, a metal stent to secure the track. I mean, pneumoperitoneum is, uh, is something when you're performing extra anatomical punctures is unavoidable. So uh, we always report a small amount of neuroperitoneum is part of the procedure and it's something that we would recognise. So I suppose the most important thing is to go by a patient's clinical symptoms and their early warning scores. If a patient has a little bit of pain post a procedure like this, even post an ERCP, that's to be expected. If they still have pain at four hours, then they should be kept in hospital overnight. Um, at that point, we would be I'd be very cautious about performing any imaging at all unless there was uh, you know a severe acute um, crisis with the patient uh, that warranted it if pain was getting worse early warning scores were going up patients were needing you know incrementally large amounts of um, analgesia which was out of keeping with just um, post-procedural pain I think that should alert one to the need for further investigations initially blood tests maybe a scan um, but I think that usually these kind of complications you would be aware of at the time of the procedure. At the time of the procedure, you have a very good understanding as to whether the stent is in the right place. You have a very good understanding if, as to whether there is whether there is significant pneumoperitoneum. Um, and, uh, you know, afterwards, 
the chance of the, the stent then spontaneously falling out is pretty unlikely. So generally we would know around the time of the procedure, but we, you know, have to be very careful because, uh, you know, we are very understanding of that, but um, especially people who have less experience in these procedures may not understand that and it may lead to in unnecessary interventions. Are there any special considerations regarding the recovery of a patient following EUSBD as compared to a patient who has undergone ERCP? No, uh, in, in, at Leeds, um, the patients are recovered in the same way in endoscopy with a specific protocol post-procedure. Um, we've also had patients who, attend, who have attended the unit for day case procedures and have been discharged successfully. Similarly, we've had patients who have been transferred from other hospitals to have the procedure done over here um, and then transferred back to the hospital um, on the same day. If pneumoperitoneum had been noted during the procedure um, and the patient gets a bit of abdominal pain, if you scan the patient quite quickly after the procedure, you will still see it, um, but it may not need reintervention. And after some time, that air just reabsorbs. Um, so it's taking things in the context of the patients. So uh, do you use prophylactic antibiotics uh, when you do EUSBD? Yes, at least we do give a single dose of prophylactic antibiotics unless the patients have already been treated for um, cholangitis beforehand. Um, if you look at the sort of different studies out there, this practice doesn't seem to be uniform. Whether it's not reported or whether it's not done, it's not clear, uh, but certainly at least we do. If we look at the rates of cholangitis in our patients who've undergone EOS cholidocodotinostomy, um, the rate of cholangitis post-procedure is around the realms of 10%, but interestingly, um, it all seems to happen not immediately after the procedure, but around a week or so after the procedure. Um, and whether that's a result of reflux of gastric contents um, into the biliary tree um, as a cause of cholangitis is possible, um, but it's not something that we've encountered straight away after the procedure. Most of these patients would respond to just conservative management of antibiotics, unless there's any evidence that the stent itself had occluded or migrated. Um, they can often be treated conservatively. If, for example, they get treated but then they remain septic, their jaundice doesn't get better, it gets worse, then it would be reasonable to re-image them to make sure that the stent hasn't, um, hasn't been um, displaced or blocked, for example. But looking at our data, the majority of them could be treated um, with antibiotics. So, so our rate of uh, cholangitis now has come down as we've done more procedures. So we've done, I think, between 70 and 80 procedures now um, when we first started doing these procedures, especially with patients with gastric outlet obstruction, we noticed that the rates of reflux cholangitis were a bit higher. Um, and one of the reasons we felt that was the case uh, was firstly because the stents in the duodenum were flat valving against the contralateral wall of the du duodenum post-procedure and probably causing an element of transient obstruction. And secondly, uh, because the stomachs weren't being drained or the duodenums weren't being um, drained or bypassed at the same procedure, um, that was leading to more gastric contents and bile filling up in the duodenum. So what we're doing now as standard as part of these procedures is firstly, through the metal stents, we place a um, short double pigtail stent just to push away the contralateral side of the duodenal wall. Um, and that's just something that we're doing, but we have certainly noticed that that in combination with same session gastric duodenal drainage or bypass has significantly dropped our rates of cholangitis post-procedure. So would that mean an additional surgical procedure? 
or would you tackle the bypass endoscopically? There's two ways that we do this, both endoscopically under the same anaesthetic. We either perform a duodenal stent um, at the same procedure immediately after the US guided biliary drainage, or we do uh, something called an EUS guided gastrojejunostomy. Um, and that's another new novel technique that we've been performing in, in a very similar cohort of patients. As a single step procedure, and then the stomach and the duodenum are drained, there's less chance of the stent being blocked by gastric contents and the flow of bile is preserved into the duodenum um, and then there's no risk of obstruction from the duodenal wall. You know, for many reasons, including the fact that we just didn't have the experience that we have now, we were doing them in separate sessions. So we're bringing them on one day for the US guttability drainage, um, which, to be fair, was taking a lot longer because we were, um, you know, more naive about them, um, and then bringing them back on another day um, for the gastric drainage procedure. But you can do both procedures all together within about 20 25 minutes. Um, if you're doing an EUS guided gastrogenostomy, we can do both procedures within about 40 minutes. So, Aaron, in an EUS rendezvous or EUS anti grade technique where there is transpapillary drainage, uh, would you uh, use rectal NSAIDs to reduce the risk of pancreatitis? Yes, we would, um, because it involves instrumentation around the vicinity of the papilla. Um, the rates of pancreatitis in USBD was 0.5%. Um, and this is particularly in patients who did undergo EOS rendezvous and EOS anti-grade USBD patients, especially if it involves instrumentation around the papilla. So, so that the kind of situation we're talking about is someone who would come down for a planned DRCP for um, drainage of a distal biliary obstruction, but then has to have an EUS guided biliary drainage for one of the reasons that we've said. If a patient's coming down for a planned EUS guided biliary drainage because they've had a previous ERCP that's failed or they've had, um, they have known gastric outlet obstruction, then that would be different. We would not provide a non-steroidal in that sense. In terms of fluids, I think we uh, look at the risk profile of the patient. So certainly all of these patients will be jaundiced and patients who are jaundiced have a higher risk of everything, including uh, cholangitis, post-procedure and pancreatitis. So we would use a very similar approach as Aaron said to ERCP in that all these patients should, if they're inpatients, they should be coming down to the department with fluids in place, um, having had IV fluids during their nil by mouth period um, and being well hydrated and so that's the most important thing to us. Um, and if the patient's had an ERCP that's been difficult and we think that their risk of post-RCP pancreatitis is going to be much higher, then we would institute a vigorous hydration protocol post-procedure. What sort of centre should consider setting up a EUSBD service? That's a really good question. I think at the moment the uh, opinion from myself and the other uh, more advanced therapeutic endocrinographers around the country is that these procedures should be done in um, primarily in tertiary and quaternary um, referral centres um, who have not just a combined expertise of uh, endoscopy of all sorts, um, ERCP um, related activity and also diagnostic and therapeutic EUS, but primarily um, have uh, a considerable backup with pancreaticobiliary and hepatic surgeons, um, dedicated radiologists and a full MDT team, including um, highly skilled nursing staff because none of this can be done without them. Um, in terms of the uh, people who should be specifically performing these procedures themselves, um, 
you know, myself and my colleague, Dr. Huggett, we train around the country and internationally in these procedures. And we mandate that the person should be completely um, skilled and independent in diagnostic uh, endocrinography. They should have done at least um, 30 uh, cis gastrostomy drainages before even considering to do a biliary drainage. And they obviously need to be in a centre which offers this level of support. Looking towards the future, do you foresee a time when all ERCPs should be able to do EUS as well? So I think that really depends on who you ask. Um, I think for, if you're asking me, I think no. Um, I think it's very important for us to have um, a breadth of ERCP expertise across the region in hospitals of every level, secondary and tertiary centres. Um, I don't think that there is currently going to be the need to provide EUS at all those centres. So I think that performing um, ERCP well in secondary care environments is exceptionally important and required. We couldn't handle the amount of procedures that there would be in all in tertiary centres and nor should we. This is a service that I strongly believe should be offered in every region in a tertiary capacity uh, which every secondary hospital should have a referral stream into. I think that's something that is a reasonable aim, an achievable aim, and will become the norm over the next 10 years. In Yorkshire, the one thing we're trying to aim towards is a regional network of consultants who can offer a specific on-call service. Um, there, is, there are very few patients that would need to be done over the weekends, um, but there are some, um, certainly those in ITU with severe cholangitis, and I think as a regional network, that's what we should be aiming towards. So what do you think is the next step for EUSBD? Well, I think right now what we're trying to really concentrate on is training. Um, uh, training in endosonography generally is something that is a very difficult road. Um, it requires at least one or maybe even more years, often more years, of uh, advanced subspecialty training post-CCT. Um, and actually recruiting for this kind of specialty when in the current era that we're in is not as easy as one might think, um, which is a shame because it's exceptionally enjoyable and it's um, really fulfilling uh, and you're getting to do things that no one else can do. You have a niche interest. It's fantastic. But in terms of what are the procedures that we can do, I think it will be doing more um, extra anatomical drainages of, of various parts of the body. We have, certainly in Leeds, we have the most experience in the country um, of these procedures and we're, uh, and we're the first to do many of them. But, but yes, I think there's about five to ten units across the country who are offering, offering it routinely and have a significant amount of experience. We haven't talked about the costs involved, have we? This is certainly expensive business, isn't it, Aaron? Well, I think, um, I think if you sort of maybe factor in, for example, um, USBD being a single-step procedure as opposed to undergoing a PTC, which is multi-step, leading to a longer length of stay in hospital and so on, it may work out to be cheaper uh, with USBD. can't say that we've done the exact costings, but one would expect um, the cost to even out or would perhaps even be in favour of USBD. So Aaron, what is it like to train in endoscopic ultrasound? So to tell you from my own personal experience that there is no general consensus on how one gets into HBB training. Um, and where I train, um, 
it seems to be that you have to be independent in gastroscopies and colonoscopies before you even touch a ERCP scope. If we want to look at training the next generation of PB endoscopists and endosonographers, I think we need to try to standardize a way of getting trainees in the middle of your training rather than to leave it too late. There is no carryover in technique between colonoscopy and ERCP, is there? So it doesn't make sense to demand competency in colonoscopy before starting ERCP. So exactly, uh, and that's why I think that this has to be standardized at a, at a national level. Okay, thank you. We're now coming to the end of our time. So Barrett and Aaron, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast and giving us some excellent insights into the fascinating world of endoscopic ultrasound. The next podcast will be a special Christmas edition. It will feature a quiz hosted by Bjorn. Look out for the publication date on Friends of Endoscopy. See you then. Bye for now.